Welcome to episode 160 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop, and today we're going to be talking about a new carbon capture uh, technology, and I'll be speaking with Beth McDaniel, president of Reactive Surfaces, and she joins us from Austin, Texas. So welcome to the interview, Beth. Thanks, Markham. Thanks for having me. Now, I have to say, I don't know if you've been been uh, you know been uh, aware of the controversy up in Canada about carbon capture utilization and storage because here the uh the oil and gas industry, particularly the oil sands, uh this based in Alberta, wants the government to subsidize their decarbonization, which is pegged at about 75 billion dollars, and they want the government to pay 50 billion dollars of that. And carbon capture is intended to be about two thirds of uh, the technology that's used for decarbonization. So, rough, literally, they're asking the the federal government or and the Alberta government to pay for fifty billion dollars for their for their carbon capture. And they're you know they're going to build pipelines, two three hundred kilometers of pipelines, and then they're going to bury it underground. And there's it is very controversial. And the, the governments, as you can imagine, don't want to spend it, spend that kind of money on it. But when I saw the the uh, information about your technology, I thought, hey, you know what? This might be an option. So maybe let's start with uh, an overview of how your technology works. Okay. Um, so it helps to go backwards to build a little context when we're talking about this. So basically what we've done is we have put algae into a paint and that algae captures CO2 from ambient situations in the atmosphere and as well as it could capture it from a from an industrial slipstream that's being piped into it. With that in mind, I'll go backwards a little bit because most people have never considered paint as a climate change solution and most mostly they've never even considered paint at all. I always say paint is the biggest industry that no one's ever thought about. So with that in mind, we've been in the paint business for about 20 years. We're not in the climate change business. And what our business entails is that we um, have merged two different scientific disciplines. One of them is biotechnology, along with material sciences, the, the paint part of that. And basically what we do, uh, paint is known, for instance, to for two qualities, to improve the aesthetics by adding color or to um, protect an underlying surface. Um, almost everything, look around you, almost everything in your in the room around you or any any of your listeners would look around and see that everything in, is coded in its manufacturing process at some point, okay? So not just the coatings on the walls, but but the coatings on your eyeglasses and, and on your clothing and on the floor and everything around you at some point, if it's man-made, has a protective coating on it. What we have done over the last 20 years in our company, Reactive Surfaces, is that we've added a third dimension. It, it, this isn't uh, unique necessarily to us. Others have added functionality to paints and coatings to derive some sort of functionality. What's unique is that we pull from nature for that functionality um, and use biomolecules generally. So things like enzymes and peptides. An enzyme, for instance, that we use a lot in nature is a lipase that breaks down greases, fats, and oils. If we entrain that into a coating system and then spread it on a surface, then it will do that in the coating system so long as the coating system is there. Uh, it will break down the, the natural greases, fats, and oils on your, on your countertop. 
It will do it on your um, on your glasses or on your computer screen and you won't have as many fingerprints, okay? So having said all that, then you understand a little bit about coatings. What we did in this instance to, to derive a climate change solution, a carbon capture and removal solution, is that we entrain not a biomolecule, but this time a live organism, an algae, a single cell bacteria, um, into that coding system and asked it to do what it does in nature, which is photosynthesize. So going back to your eighth grade science, we know that, that algae uh, in nature will pull down CO2 with the help of moisture in the atmosphere, as well as, as um, sunlight and, and release oxygen and glucose. And so that's what we're doing and we entrain it in a coding. Your next question might very well be, why would you put, do that? Okay, if nature does it just fine, I'm happy to answer that or I'll pause for a moment. Well, I, I, we'll get to that, why you might do it, uh, because that actually might be the easiest question uh, that I'll ask you, but it's how it does it. So it pulls, you, and I, I assume that we're talking about standard carbon capture equipment here, that all kinds of companies make them. There's companies in the US, companies in, in Canada that make this, this equipment. But that equipment would be coated with your with your paint. And it it would capture the it would capture the CO2, uh, which I from according to my notes is becomes an al algal biomass containing the CO2, accumulates in the paint, and then can be converted to biochar. Now, can you explain? in layman's terms, how that works? Yes. So I'm going to go backwards to something that you said. So take out of your mind that this has anything to do with any other carbon removal system. This is not. So what you should envision, and a lot of people envision when they think about paints and coatings, that we're going to paint this on the outside of a wall. It's not that we couldn't do it. It's just not the highest and best use, given the urgency and the breadth of this situation. Okay. So the good thing about paint that I was going to get to is that paint is uh, we, we operate in the surface area industry, okay? We functionalize surface area. There are canvases for functionality, surface area. And so one thing that we're short on in all these other systems, for example, natural systems like trees and stuff is surface area. There's not enough lateral area on earth to do the job that we need to do and pulling down as much CO2 as we have to do. Now, as far as like building big, um, you know, battleship galactica kind of, you know, carbon dioxide removal systems. No, that's not what we're talking about. Oh, okay. What we're talking about is a, a envision a module. Okay. And I'm talking about uh, what we work with in our labs are, are um, one meter cubed or even smaller. We've, we've scaled up through different kinds of modules, but imagine a one meter cube module. And imagine a painted surface. So we just take a, a literally a sheet of plastic mesh and we coat, coat that with our special paint. And then imagine a whole bunch of those painted surfaces in that module. So that if we have a module that's one meter cubed, we, we might have 20 meters squared worth of surface area in that, okay? And then we might stack them or we might lay them out flat. It depends on if we're doing direct air capture or if we're doing capture from a from a um, an emitter. And so, no, this is think of modules with as stuffed with as much densely packed surface area as possible, and that's what it is. They could be just in a greenhouse or not even a building necessarily. 
Well, let's talk about in, industrial emissions because that's, I think, where the most interest lies because that's the, the greatest volume of, of CO2 that's emitted. Uh, and, and getting back to the, I'll use the oil sands as an example. And, re, and the reason I use that is because it's 11 or 12% of Canada's national emissions. I mean, these things are huge industrial plants up in northern Alberta. And, you know, so the system that I had assumed that you were going to be coding, uh, you know, these things, are, they're massive, uh, massive equipment in these plants attached to pipelines that then that then run out to other pipelines and then and then transport the, the CO2 in a pipe to an old oil and gas reservoir and they pump it down and store it. Okay, so that's the current system approach to carbon capture and storage. Would your modules, these screens that you're talking about or whatever material you use in in an industrial application, would it go in the flue stack? Like, would it go? Where would it? Where would you install that to capture the emissions from an industrial plant? We could put it in the parking lot. Okay, we're talking about you. Just imagine a whole bunch of modules, one meter cube modules stacked next to each other. Uh, in in the case where we can use waste heat and waste energy from an from an industrial uh, situation then we would stack these, okay? We're not just using solar power and that makes a difference depending on what we're doing. But but we would stack these modules up, pipe in and probably put them in some sort of enclosure like a, like a greenhouse or something and then pipe in CO2. And the great thing about algae is algae loves CO2. So the more CO2 we have piped in, the better and the faster that the rate that the photosynthesis takes place. Now I'll go ahead and answer something else because you brought up the, the injection of CO2 deep into the ground. And that's something different also about our technology. Um, and so once, once this um, CO2 is captured and the algae start to uh, duplicate is what they do is how they grow and they build up this biomass that contains the CO2. Then the good thing about paint is it doesn't get re-emitted. Okay, it's fixed in the paint until we decide to do something. It might it's not durably sequestered, which refers to a, in the climate change world as a hundred years or more. Okay, so it's not necessarily durably sequestered in the paint, although it could be, but it's not. But, but we're not going to assume that. Okay, but it does fix it. So naturally, in 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 nature, you know, algae would re-emit when it dies. It would re-emit the CO two back into the atmosphere, and so this is not happening. So we're watching it the whole time as it's building up this biomass and at a critical time, when, which we determine is the best time, we uh, harvest that the, the coating. And then we have a way, a chelator, uh, which is a chemical method of, of breaking down the component parts and separating everything. And so we can take out the, the algal biomass from the coating and even the water, reuse the coating materials as well as even the water um, and so we recycle all those things back into the system and we take that biomass and, and could we inject it down into the ground? Yeah, we could. We choose not to do that in our, in our system, um, because there's questions about that. I have, I personally have questions about it and I don't know if it's the right thing. So what we do at that point is biochar that, which is a known recognized form of durable sequestration for CO2. How does biochar work? Um, 
Biochar, okay, so I am not an expert in biochar, but fortunately we have experts in biochar. We're on the paint side, but but we have uh, we're working with experts in that. And so biochar is like um is like burning something without oxygen. And um and what it does is uh it ends up you end up with a uh like a charcoal briquette. Okay, which can also be broken down into like a sand almost. The one I've seen it has been in a sand. Now, the good thing about biochar is it's a valuable byproduct and it's a it's a known soil amendment because what biochar does in nature or if it's used in nature will help pull out moisture from the atmosphere. So if you spread that on your on your ground, then then actually the ground will become even a better carbon sink as well. So we see that as a better process than trying to inject it two miles down into the ground. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. So uh, we'll get back to biochar in a minute, but so I, now if I understand this correctly, I I've seen in Calgary, they have a, a big natural gas power plant called the shepherd plant. Uh, it's in the Southeast Calgary, not far from where I used to live as a matter of fact, but I, I was out there just last week and they have a research center there for something in, entirely different, but they do remove uh, flue gas from the stacks uh, and they pipe it over to this building where the research takes place. And I, so I, what I'm envisioning when you, when you describe this is, is pipes coming out of the plant. They're taking all of the flue gas from that natural gas plant. And now they're, you've, you've created a building it has all of these mesh in there that's covered, coated with your your special paint, and that that flue gas flows through that building across the paint, and the algae sucks the CO two out of it, and then it is deposited. It's 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 sequestered in the paint, and then at some point when you think it's optimal, you go in and you and you harvest the algae off the paint. And then you turn it into biochar. Have I got the the process more or less right? Yeah, pretty much. But I mean, I in the case of like burning oil, okay. And I am not an expert at that. Okay, you should be talking. But where there's methane, then the methane is burned, and that creates a CO two that would go into our system. Okay, and that's gotcha. my understanding of it. Okay, um, it, where there's a, an industrial process that just purely emits that CO two, then yes, we would capture that CO two and just and pipe it into our system. And, um, and then, yeah, and then it would be absorbed into the paint. Right. Using so, so unlike the other system, there's no piping CO2 for hundreds of kilometers and worrying about all of that. It basically all takes place right next to where the CO2 is created. Power plant, mm -hmm. industrial plant, whatever it might be, correct? Right. That is our intention. We're, we're building our first pilot plant next to an industrial facility, a biomass conversion facility. Um, we're, we're in the, it's in the pipeline right now, so to speak. Gotcha. Uh, okay. So if I understand this correctly, you're, you've, you've done the work in the lab, you've created prototypes to should you know, demonstration of concept, uh, equipment to show that you're, that the, the process that you're talking about works. Now you're going to do a demonstration project so that you you know, at some small scale so that you can show that it works outside of the lab. And what comes, uh, have I got that right? And what's the next step after that? Right. Yeah. So now it's time to, we've done it in the lab. We've scaled up many times in the lab. 
Okay, so we are now at, like I said, about a meter cubed um, module. This will always be a modular system though. So the good thing about that is once we show it in a pilot scale level, which everyone can see it happening and pulling down CO2 from this industrial process, then it's really just a matter of adding modules, okay, to build a bigger facility. And um, where, so where we are is we're, we're in the paint business, okay? So we're not in the in the engineering business and we have engineers that we're hiring. We've, we've got experts in the field, okay? We have some of the best algae experts in the world. We have uh, experts all over the place, but that's also what we need is like the design and engineering experts that are building this, this pilot plant and that, um, and we'll design all of that that you're talking about. But yeah, that's where we're at. The yeah, paint okay, works so great. We can prove I, the paint every day from Sunday, you know? Gotcha. So my, if you can prove the paint, then engineers can come along and design systems based on whatever source of CO2 you've got. And we talked about a couple of them, power plants, industrial plants, so on. And and they can design it to fit the the application. And but the secret sauce here is the paint. That that's exactly. really where paint it comes. is the hero here. Yeah. We're talking right. about building a module. We've built modules and our modules work. Okay. I just imagine you know, a BASF or some other project designer. We're talking to some very large companies right now that are in industrial emitters that are trying to do something about it. And they're like, yeah, we could take that and, and you know, and engineer that to death. Okay. So they've, we just don't have that resource on hand. And we expect that there will be engineers that will get a hold of this and will take it much further. But what we have right now works to the extent that, you know, we can definitely prove up that the paint is the hero and the paint works great. Great. So would you, in addition to selling the paint, do you license the technology so that they can design it into modules? How does, is that yeah, part of your good, business good model? Question. So business model wise, we're, we've never been in the business of um, manufacturing paint. We're always on the innovation side. We're just in the innovation space in the paint and coatings industry. So we don't sell any paint. Uh, we can manufacture paint to the extent that we need to, because we're alongside a paint university, the university of Southern Mississippi, probably the most well-renowned paint and polymer department. And that's where our accelerator is, is right next to them. So we can make the paint that we need, but when it comes to making paint at this scale, no, we would, we would team up with a paint company and yes, we license technology. That's how, that's our business model. Oh, gotcha. Interesting. Okay. Now um, tell us about the X prize that you were involved in and, and it wasn't clear. Did you win the X prize or? It hasn't been. Yeah, it, no one's won it yet. It doesn't, um, the X Prize won't be determined until um, April, Earth Day, April 2025, which I think is in April 22nd of 2025. So the X Prize for your listeners who might not be familiar with it is a national, it, there's a lot of different X Prizes and they're usually um, to stimulate innovation in an area that is, uh, that represents an existential worldwide global problem, something like poverty or food scarcity or or water, um, you know, cleanliness. And, and so um, and so this X Prize was sponsored by Elon Musk, and uh, it's an X Prize for the best carbon removal technology. In order to win the X Prize, it's one hundred million dollars. It's the biggest prize ever given away ever. Um, is it prize purse? It's not for first. I think it's fifty million for the first prize. 
Um, and so what they're looking for uh, in order to win the X prize, you have to show three things. One thing, the first thing is that you have to demonstrate 1000 tons of CO2 is pulled down and sequestered. Number two, you have to uh, model costs of that system at the million ton level. And number three, and most importantly, that everyone needs to understand is if, if, if you can't scale up to gigaton, then you ain't done nothing. Okay. I mean, there is, this is a, a billion ton level thing. I mean, I heard the other day, well, I heard it was a while ago that Microsoft bought like 1400 tons of CO2. Okay. And I just want to, <laughs> that is nothing. Okay. I mean, that did right. nothing to help the the situation. And, uh, you know, you might as well use that money to build a shelter for the people that are going to suffer from climate change because you did nothing. You have to, we have to be at the gigaton level. It has to be able to scale up. We have an embodiment we envision for that scale up to the gigaton level. All I can say is it makes perfect sense that Texans would want to do something at the gigaton level, right? Everything's <laughs> bigger than Texas. Texas. That's right. <laughs> Uh, well, let's talk about price because um, your cost is in the $700 to $1,500 uh, per ton of CO2 captured range. And I'll tell you why that's interesting to uh, Canadians is we, uh, by 2030, the uh, carbon price in this country is going to be $170. That'll be one of the highest in the world. And it'll be going up from there. And I would assume that over time, as your technology gets deployed, the cost per unit will come down. Is that is that fair? That's and where I'm going with this is if the cost per unit comes down and as carbon prices rise, at some point, it's going to be economical. I mean, it'll pay for itself with the carbon pricing. Right. Does that, does so that make sense? when you say carbon pricing, um, yeah, I'd like to know what is it, because we don't have that. Are you talking about a carbon tax? I'm talking about a carbon tax in Canada we have two carbon prices. We have one for consumers and one for industrial emitter emitters. That's amazing. And and so, uh, like, if you're in Alberta, uh, now there's some wrinkles on this because oil and gas companies right now get a break, a, a discount. I won't go into the intricacies of that. But nevertheless, they get a break. But at some point in the near future, they're going to be paying the full cost. So right now, it's $50 a ton. No, $60 a ton, sorry, as of January 1st. And it'll be going up $15 per year. So by 2030, it'll be $170. And then it'll rise after that. We don't know how much yet. It hasn't been determined by the government. So industrial emitters in particular, uh, not only are they going to pay the carbon tax, but there are other regulations that will be uh, incentivizing them to, to reduce their, their emissions. And mm -hmm. there are plenty of hard-to-abate uh, industries in this country, oil and gas just being the most obvious one that I'm familiar Airline. with. But yeah, there's, well, you know, airlines and then you've got steel making and you've got, you know, there's all sorts of heavy industry, right? That's, it's, it's difficult that would probably benefit from this. And so it seems like you're kind of headed towards that, that sweet spot where carbon prices rise, your costs come down and suddenly this thing is paying for itself. Yeah. So that's exactly right. You know, if 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 there's an incentive, if if a company has to pay a tax of $170, they might as well pay for a solution that costs $170 is the idea. And so um I'd like to uh 
I'd like to define something. Okay. So the what the the costs that you got are from a paper, a peer-reviewed journal, a peer-reviewed paper that was published in the CO, the journal of CO2 utilization. And that journal, what we did is it's based on our LCA, our life cycle analysis and techno-economic analysis that was done by a third party independent party that evaluated our technology. And that so the way they do that is they have to draw certain boundaries around what it is that they're evaluating and costing. Um, those boundaries were based on a, um, in our case, were based on a direct air capture system and not a system in which we're being fed CO2 from a from an emission slipstream. So that changes the formula completely. And in evaluating and, and, and comparing technologies, you always want to look at the system boundaries. I'll tell you that some of them don't even include, ours is cradle to grave. Some of them don't include the grave part. I mean, there is no, there there's really, um, there's not a system of equivalence here, okay? So you really have to look into the details. So our costs on a direct air capture solar only model are ranging from 600 to 1500 given different um, variables. And yes, of course those costs are expected to come down um, with efficiencies. Uh, they're expected to come down with for a, a variety of reasons, just because we're gonna get better at what we do. Um, but, um, I always, I, I, the costs are fluffy anyway, okay? <laughs> I mean, I hate to say it because not necessarily ours, but everyone's, everyone is putting different variables into that functionality, into that equation, and they're not the same. So um, so that's my, I, I could go on about it, but I won't. You're right. Well, let's, let's talk about direct air capture because in Texas, uh, Occidental Petroleum, Oxy, uh, is uh, building a number of direct air capture plants uh, attached to Army their base. operations with direct air capture, which is based in Calgary, Alberta, Canadian company. Yeah. So th this is very this is very interesting. So your technology would compete with that on the direct air capture side. That that's one application of it, right? It just sucks carbon out of CO2 out of the atmosphere, just yeah. like, and, and the direct air capture, just for anybody who's not familiar with it, they're basically like big fans, big, huge, great fans. It's and they suck or sorbent technology. Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. So they suck, they suck it, suck out the CO2 and then they bury it under underground. So, but let's talk about on the industrial side where you're not doing direct air capture. Now you've got flue gas going directly into your modules. What are the costs there? Honestly, we have not evaluated that exactly, uh, those system boundaries exactly. So that is, but the cost is going to come down greatly. In fact, when we evaluate um, scope in our, in most of the LCAs that are done, they include scope one and scope two emissions. Um, and when we include, I was talking with our LCA um, scientists when they said, but when we do include the biochar, as a scope three emission, which was not included in ours before, that actually will make our numbers improve rather than go the other direction. Um, and I'll say something about, and Carbon Engineering is a great company and they have a great system, but it takes a certain amount of electricity. Uh, and so I, I don't know, um, plus what they're doing a lot of times is I think in the Permian Basin is they're pushing out oil. Okay. So their, their utilization at the other end at the graveside is, is that they're doing enhanced oil recovery with that carbon dioxide that's pulled, that's captured. And in that, so what you have to look at is, is that whole process, when you take that whole boundary into, 
into effect, is it a net negative situation? If they're pumping out more oil, it's, it's by definition not net negative. Right. Okay. I, yes, that's one of the criticisms of, of it for, for sure. The, the I wanted to just make one observation and maybe ask a question, and that is, so we talk about direct air capture and what your costs are. That's where they're basically they're exposed to the ambient air. Right, the, the the modules that you you've got. But if you're mm -hmm. if you're pumping flue gas over over your modules, which is very much more concentrated than obviously ambient air, then that would seem to be a big increase in the efficiency of your of your paint, thereby lowering your per unit cost. Is that a reasonable assumption? Right. Yes, it makes it it makes the process happen faster and and more efficient. Mm -hmm. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, look, give us a, what are the, give me the one or two top impediments, the, the obstacles to adoption of your technology. Well, you mentioned one, and that is that people have in their brain that this thing should just cost a hundred dollars a ton. Okay. That hundred dollars a ton is based on, and I, I researched this because I was like, where are they coming up with this? First of all, there is no carbon removal technology on earth that's achieving it. Not even close. Okay, um, but people have it in investors and, and companies have it in their head that we should be achieving $100. Um, even they're not even achieving anywhere close to that. It's in the it's in the multiple hundreds, if not thousands that the companies that are practicing this right now are achieving. If you if you account for cradle to grave. And so uh, and, and what I found when I researched it is it's based on the actual cost to, to purchase CO2 to like put in your Coca-Cola. Okay. And so if you're out there <laughs> buying it as a material for your, for your Coke or whatever you need, then it's a hundred dollars a ton. Well, that's not, that's not an equivalence that we should try to be living up to. Okay. I mean, we're talking right. about life and death here. We're talking about an asteroid heading for earth and we need to get real. And so if we're keeping, so what we've found is it's very hard to get a technology out there that's not achieving it, but it's not based on reality or truth, really. And it's not even based on logic. So that's my biggest bone with um, with industry and investors about is that they're leaning on this one figure that is not, it's nonsensical. Okay, so what you've got is an incorrect perception of, of the issue by policymakers, investors, and and so on, and that that getting over top of educating those folks is is a big hurdle for for your company. Uh, what is? And I, I was going to ask you what would be the biggest boost to adoption, but it's almost self evident, isn't it? I mean, this is such a big problem, and and there are so many incentives now. Well, maybe I will ask you this. Do you expect that the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, the $369 billion federal legislation that got passed last August, and, and that money is available to 2030, what, what influence might that have on the adoption of your technology? It's having a lot already. Um, we're already in negotiations with a, a very large emitter, um, the largest in their industry, I won't say, because then you would know who it is and we're under a confidentiality. Um, to build a plant, and there's a FOA um, uh, um, with the government, you know, to to try to get a hold of some of these funds in order to do that. It's um, and so we're already seizing upon um, the opportunities that the that the that that Inflation Reduction Act has provided, and so are they. And there are certain industries, like you mentioned, some the steel industry, the airline industry. They're they're really working hard. I will say I'm impressed because they they've got it. They're like we're dirty, 
and we got to clean up our mess. And that's the attitude that they need to have. And, um, and that's what they're doing. So well, I'm uh, glad, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm glad and to the hear government's that. providing a way to do that. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I'm glad to hear that the potential customers that you're talking to have got that kind of attitude that they, you know, it's such a sea change. I've been doing this, you know, covering energy and climate for 10 plus years now. And the, the sea change in attitudes that has taken place over that period of time where, you know, 10 years ago, there were plenty of people in industry and, and other places, you know, who just simply denied climate change. And and now everybody accepts the science and uh, understands that the things have to be done and and there's a there's a uh, an urgency to getting this to addressing this issue and adopting new technologies like yours uh, that there wasn't you know even a couple of years ago two three four five yeah. years ago you know things have changed a lot have you noticed that especially down in the U S uh, oh yeah <laughs> especially in Texas. Uh, yeah, not necessarily just in Texas, but but yeah, we have um, noticed that people, I think what happened is the shareholders of these large companies are saying, we're not going to take this anymore. They're younger, you know, I mean, you know, we're the adults in the room, Markham, okay, you know, and we kind of, <laughs> and I always thought of myself as a kid, but we're not, you know, we've got to take care of this problem. And I think people are stepping up and um, not just, but what they need to do to realize is that there's not really uh anything out there that's that's removing the co2 we have to mitigate that's very important okay and there's two sides to this coin there's the mitigation and there's the carbon removal but without but mitigation without carbon removal will not achieve the results that we're looking for and we might pass up and we will pass up a point of no return well i i really hope that um that this podcast episode is listened to by the folks at the pathways Alliance, which is the all of the oil sands companies that are looking at uh, carbon capture by the Office of uh, Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson, who's the minister, federal minister responsible. I, I won't even bother with the the Alberta minister responsible because they, they they're not really tuned into this. They're kind of they're kind of like Texas, you know. You know Greg Abbott. Well, of course you know Greg Abbott, but you're in Austin. No, I mean, he's right across the street, probably. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, re- I remember I remember Greg Abbott from my days and when I was going to Texas and uh, uh, how do we put this? Not the most forward-thinking governor uh, and not a big fan of climate uh, climate uh, mitigation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly right. Well, look, Beth, good luck to you and your your husband. Husband's name Steve, right? Yes, and he is the crazy scientific, you know, science guy that I live with and I'm married to, and I <laughs> is my partner, and he is a brilliant innovator. And um, this technology was based on on lichen, and it works just like lichen. We can talk about that another time, but um, um, and so he is, and and our team is a fantastic team that we've um, assembled, and our our tech team is great, and so we've we've come up with this together. Yeah. Well, good luck with good luck to you because this sounds like if it you know once you get it scaled and and if it works as you expect it to then it would be a significant contribution to uh, uh, carbon dioxide, CO2, and, and greenhouse gas emission abatement. Uh, so uh, good luck to you, and um, thank you very much for this. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate you and your audience. Thanks.